Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, the running editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so this week I brought my sometimes co-host, Leah Yingling, back on the show to debrief her run at the Western States 100 back at the end of June. Now, if you've listened to past episodes with Leah, you'll know that we spent quite a bit of time talking about her training and preparation leading up to the big dance. So I wanted to have her on after the race to hear all about how things went down. While Leah dispenses a ton of good info that's pretty specific to racing 100 miles, I do think that there's plenty of tidbits in this conversation that can benefit just about anybody. This is a really fun episode. And before we get into that chat, though, I do want to take a quick minute and encourage you all to check out our Blister membership and all the benefits it offers, including access to all of our flash reviews and deep dives, personalized gear recommendations to help you find the right pair of running shoes, discounts on a bunch of really sweet products we love, and a whole lot more. So check out our Blister membership via the link in the show notes. Okay, let's get right into my conversation with Leah Yingling. All right, Leah, uh, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is going to be a fun chat. I think this is the third time you'll be on, so you're uh, you're considered a co-host now. Congrats. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's an honor. Yeah. Um, so we're about, what, three weeks removed from Western States? Yep, coming up on three weeks. Um, yeah, three weeks of Saturday. So it's been, uh, what a journey. I uh, I wanted to have you on intentionally, kind of not immediately after you finish Western States, because I think that like after you go through an experience like that, I know, like for myself, at least it takes a little while to kind of like for it to settle in and to form thoughts on it. So that's why why I've waited. But I've had <laughs> multiple people be like, you got to have Leah back on. So I was like, I know, I know she's coming back on. Don't worry. Yeah, um, I'm glad you didn't reach out to me in the couple weeks afterwards. I started, uh, I took a new job kind of two weeks before Western States. So things decided to ramp up exponentially, like the day I got back from Western States. So I feel like things are finally starting to settle down a little bit. Yeah. Oh, that's brutal timing. <laughs> but like, also, like, you can't really explain to your new job, like, hey, like, no, <laughs> I, uh, I just ran 100 miles. <laughs> like, can you maybe, you know, cut me a little bit of slack? I know my, my coach, Megan, was like, you should take Monday off. I was like, I can't. I've got three three procedures going on. I was like, I just can't, but I'll take a nap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> naps naps go a long way. Um, yeah, so I got, I had the privilege of crewing and pacing you um, all day on Western States weekend. Um, and I paced you from miles 80 to 94.5. So Greengate to Pointed Rocks. Um, so I thought that this episode could kind of consist of us going back and forth and, and sharing our experience because it was it was like a day I won't soon forget. And I've been thinking about it uh, pretty consistently since. Yeah. Does that sound good to you? Yeah, you and me both. It, it was um, special on so many levels. And I think a lot went into it um, and a lot of people went into it. So I think that's what makes Western States just so special. Yeah, uh, I think we should probably provide a little bit of context for maybe some listeners that aren't familiar with Western states. Um, I've heard it compared to like the analogy used that it's like the the Super Bowl of ultra running in the U.S. Would you like agree with that? 
I think so. And I think especially um, in terms of 100 milers too, like the Super Bowl of 100 milers, uh, yeah. it's a goal for many. It's a really tough race to get into. And your options are either getting in off a lottery system that's very competitive, that takes usually years and years to get into. Um, you could get a sponsor spot, a volunteer spot, or you can race your way into it uh, through the golden ticket races. Uh, and I think what makes it so special is the history behind it, being that it's the whole, oldest 100 miler in the United States and just the energy that surrounds it. It brings the best of the best, not just from the US, but also internationally. And I think that was proven through and through this year with uh, the level of competition, uh, especially on the women's side internationally. Yeah, and I know last year, because of COVID, there was some restrictions uh, as it related to getting a lot of European runners over. Um, so this year, it felt like the field was was as stacked as it's been in, in quite some time. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think it made for a really dynamic day because, um, you know, some people got out on the course to train. Other people were training abroad in colder climates, uh, not really used to the hot, dry elements that California in June offers you. So, yeah, I think it was interesting because it really made it anybody's day. Yeah. And the race has a pretty cool history, as you alluded to. Um, it started kind of out of a horse race called the Tevis Cup in 1977 was the first official running of the Western States Endurance Run. Um, but the idea for the race started because in 1973, during the running of the Tevis Cup, uh, a participant's horse came up lame. Gordy Ainsley's horse came up lame, I think, 30 miles into the race. And he just decided to see if he could, like, <laughs> run the rest of the way. Uh, and so the next year, he started on foot with the rest of the horses to see if he could finish the entire course in under 24 hours. And I think the course that year was like 89 miles, but he did it. And uh, yeah, it's stuff a legend now. Oh, man. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I can't imagine being the first person to cover the ground of Western states and set the history and set the stage for what it is today. Yeah. And the Tevis Cup is still run annually. I think it's actually pretty soon. I know I was talking to a friend of mine who has ambitions to kind of do the double to race oh. the Tevis Cup uh, as well as run Western States. And she was saying that um, they like to have the Tevis Cup um, when it's like the closest to the full moon. So like, you can kind of see for most of the night. Oh, uh, but I had like so many questions about like how <laughs> long it takes for a horse to run 100 miles. And I think it's like 12 hours. Wow. Okay. So they're yeah. still faster than humans slightly. <laughs> yeah. And she also said that there's an award at the end of the race for the horse that like looks the best, <laughs> which I thought was like an interesting well, we element. Should have that. We should have that in ultra running. <laughs> That'd be amazing. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Best? <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. So why don't we hop into this, um, like race recap, maybe take it from the beginning. Like what was your strategy going into the race? Yeah. So uh, Western States starts in Olympic Valley and um, you finish then on the Auburn track and it's, um, oh gosh, how many feet of elevation gain? Probably about 17, 18,000 feet of elevation gain and about 22,000 feet of descending. Um, and the first climb of the race is up the escarpment. So 
your steepest climb of the day and it hits you right off the bat. And it's in um, early morning hours, so pretty dark. You start. I started with a headlamp and in retrospect, I probably did not need one because there's lights all along the uh, ski slopes and it's daylight within you know 30 minutes, so it's not too bad. Um, but yeah, so the, for the first, let's say 30 miles or so, um, you climb, you already start up high, but then you climb up high and you, you stay high. So I live in Salt Lake city and I live at 5,000 feet elevation. And, um, I think we started Western States. It's roughly, uh, gosh, I don't know, six or 7,000 feet, I believe. And we got up to probably like the high point of the race, like 9,000, somewhere between nine and 9,500 feet. And that actually posed a bigger challenge than I would have anticipated. Um, I like to think that I'm pretty acclimated to altitude. I enjoy climbing a lot. So the climbing wasn't much of a challenge, but I think the altitude affected me more than I would have ever expected in terms of um, just how I was feeling like nauseous and whatnot. So my intentions were to really take those first 30 miles really easy, make some friends and find some friends that I already had and run with them, share some laughs with them, share some stories and just enjoy everything that was, especially that first climb. Um, so me and Zoe Rom, we ended up sharing the whole escarpment climb together and my friend Brett Hornig and just being able to find familiar faces and um, talk about, you know, the day to come was just such a highlight for me. And uh, watching the sunrise at the top was an incredible moment that I really won't forget anytime soon. Um, so that was just a brilliant start to the day. And I think for me, it set the tone of running the patient race that I was anticipating having. So just took it super easy from the get go. And as we were staying up in that high country, just checking in with myself. And luckily, I was feeling kind of nauseous. So I couldn't go any harder than I was at that moment. But just making sure that, hey, is this every is this all day pace and checking myself regularly and making sure that it was. And I think that definitely helped um, in the later stages of the race, especially. Yeah, there's a saying that you never want to be uh, the first up the escarpment. 100%. And I was like, Honestly, I'd rather be like 25th up the escarpment and I'm happy. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. So I saw you at Robinson Flat, which is like 30 miles into the race. Um, what were those first 30 miles like? What was like the terrain like? Um, how were you feeling? Did you kind of, uh, did your energy improve at all? Yeah. Um Gosh, I didn't feel great probably for the first 10 miles or so. And it is, it's rugged. Um, and I've heard people say that in the past, but it runs like a hard mountain 50K. Um, you're, not, you're not doing a ton of climbing necessarily, but the terrain that you're running when you're up high is, um, it's very rocky. Um, you go through all these bogs, so it's a little wet, but it was very, it was challenging. And I think if you're moving faster uh, than you should be at that time, it could do you in pretty early in the day, especially if you're not used to mountain running like that. Um, so I just anticipated keeping it easy through there. And I did start to feel a little bit better on our descent into the first crewable aid station. Um, I can't remember if that's, I think that's like Duncan Canyon, Dusty Corners. Yeah, I think it's Dusty Corners. I think it's Dusty Corners first, yeah. Um, my memory escapes me. But um, my thought process in those first miles were to control all the controllables. And I kept telling my, one of my mantras of the day was take care of yourself. Yeah. Just take care of yourself, even when you're alone, because yes, Western States is a very crewable race and you see your crew pretty often, but there's also these big, like, I don't know, it's never really more than 
an hour or so, but like there's gaps where you don't see your crew for a little bit and it's really on you to be responsible for taking care of yourself. Um, and it's easier said than done because you are in the midst of racing, you're, you're running with people and then you go through an aid station and you don't want to lose that momentum of running with them. Um, so oftentimes you might just go through it pretty fast and forget that, you know, you, you are central to your race and you need to really stay on top of taking care of yourself. Um, so that was something I focused largely on in those first 30 miles. I took a bandana with me from the start of the race because I anticipate I run pretty warm to begin with, but you know, in my mind, I said, it's never too early to start like your heat mitigation protocol. And I think having a nice bandana with me early on allowed for me, um, even at mile like 20 to start sticking ice down my sleeves, ice in my bandana and just staying on top of it. Because I know once you start to overheat and then especially when you're in the high altitude terrain, like we were, it gets difficult to eat. And in order to have the day I wanted to have, um, required me to be eating all day long. Um, so that was my biggest priority early on was take care of yourself. And I think it set me up really well because I, I believe I was probably right around like 20th or so at the top of the escarpment and like even into the first or for the women I was, um, and then into the first couple aid stations, I, I sat around that position. And then I think in the five to 10 miles right before, um, I saw you at Robinson flat was when I think I moved my way up into the top 15. I think I was around 13th place or so. So I think that was a that put me in a great spot to get the energy from you guys at Robinson flat. Yeah. How early did it start getting like pretty, pretty hot? I was hot at ugh, 9 a.m. <laughs> Cause I think I, I saw you guys at Robinson flat about five hours, 45 minutes into the race, which was 10 45 and it was hot by then. And I know I had been hot for, or starting to get warm probably two hours before that. So yeah, probably between eight and 9 a.m. Um, and, you know, I did, I did heat training and I, you know, I'm pretty cognizant of those things, but it definitely started to feel warm. And I think it was probably, probably in the seventies, at least that early. Nuts. <laughs> uh, before we go any further, let's talk about your crew. Um, how did you go about kind of, uh, collecting them? Yeah. Um, man, crew is crucial at Western States and you can go with like a skeleton crew of like crew A and they just carry out all the race responsibilities for the day, or you can separate the responsibilities and have a crew A and crew B. And I knew I wanted to do that just because I didn't want to burden one crew with all the responsibilities for the day. Cause that's, I mean, it is a lot. And I mean, bless my crews because you guys had, you, you guys pretty much ran a hundred miles that day too, um, because it, it's exhausting and it's a lot of driving. And I think that part of um, crew in Western States needs to be talked about a little bit more. Like the driving is insane, especially when you're talking about those like dusty corners and Duncan Canyon aid stations. Um, they require a pretty long initial drive. Um, so yeah, my crews were, uh, crew A, which was my husband, Mike, you, and then my dad who decided to come out to Western States about 10 days prior. Um, and this was his first, this was his second race of mine that he saw. Another one was in my hometown is a 70 miler. So I mean, I told him of all races he could have chosen. This was like, it was the Super Bowl of ultra running. So I said, buckle up and don't worry about doing anything and sit back and just observe the day. <laughs> um, so that was crew A. And then I had um, two other friends, uh, Chase and Kate, who were kind of like rotating with crew A a little bit and taking on like extra responsibilities, but they weren't going to be at all the crew A eight stations. And then crew B was comprised of my friend Dimitri 
Sarah and then my good friend, Anna. And um, I anticipated having my friend Teresa be on that crew as well, but she came down with COVID the week prior. So she was actually going to pace me for a section and we had to, um, we had to sub Dimitri in last minute. <laughs> he did a great job. Uh, yeah, going back to your point about all the driving, I can't imagine folks that only have a crew A. I can't imagine either because it is, it's a large responsibility. It's hot. It's, it's a lot. Um, and I think it was hard enough as is for two crews. The advice I got going into it was if you're trying to be competitive, have two crews. If you like, you're still being competitive, but you're like not as concerned with a top spot, then you can get by with one crew. But I think for me, having two crews was always what I wanted to do. Um, but make, making sure I was like methodical about planning for each crew so that when they arrived at each aid station, they didn't have to do any thinking as to what I needed. I already told them what to expect, what I would need. So I think I took on that part of organization for them um, in hopes to alleviate, you know, that aspect of like, it's, it's a little burdensome. Yeah. So I think the first aid station that you can have crew at is Duncan Canyon, which is at 24 and a half miles mm -hmm. and it's a three and a half hour drive from the start so yeah. if someone if your crew wants to go to the start with you it's almost like impossible for them uh -huh. to then drive all the way and meet you again at uh duncan canyon so yeah that's that's a good point because i think with our crew we had crew a which was mike you and my dad you guys went to the start but crew b did not they um you know, they left a little bit after us in the morning and they just went straight out out there. So you're right. It's uh, it's tricky to if anybody wants to watch the start, they almost have to be on crew A. Yeah. And I, I thought that your kind of aim to take the thinking out of helping you at aid stations was was really smart because, you know, as you said, when I got to bed uh, the next morning, it felt like I had run 100 miles, too. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I because I got up. At the same time you did and my brain was was not all, uh, not all the way there so uh yeah having like post-it notes on each little bag that told me like okay leah's coming in this is what she needs we just swapped out your vest and then sent you on your way and uh, i thought that was something that you did really well the entire day was just not sitting down at aid stations and just making those super efficient. Because um, I think that like, yeah, folks can definitely dawdle for good reason oh, through those aid stations when, you know, if they've been running for an hour or so and, and haven't seen, oftentimes they haven't seen like, you know, their family for a while it can mm -hmm. be, can be nice to just like take a beat, but you also lose time that way. Oh, exactly. And I thought one of the funniest comments the day after was when I was talking to Mike, he was like, I asked him how crewing was um, just to get his perspective. I'm like, what went well, what didn't? He's like, honestly, that was just so easy. And I just wanted to sit there and be like, well, yeah, I um, did you see me the whole day prior? Like I was on the floor, Excel spreadsheet, post-it notes, baggies, everything. So yeah, my goal is to make it as easy as possible. So I was happy he said that because I felt like, oh, okay, that was a testament to the work I put in the day prior. And like, just the planning that goes into it. And I've been saying that, you know, since I put all that work in this year, hopefully if I return next year, it'll be a lot, a lot easier and a lot less planning to do. But yeah, you make a great point about that amount of stop time. Um, because I think, you know, you could do a deep dive on some of the Stravas of people who ran Western States this year, but 
there's so much of the race that can really be gained at aid stations. And that's been something I've practiced a lot this past year. And I think racing a good bit this year has given me good lessons in a lot of um, those aspects of efficiency. So what can we do to cut down on time at aid stations? Because at the end of the day, if I can, I think for Western States, my stop time was somewhere around 25 minutes or so, um, which like, and oh, my favorite moment was the video that um, my friend Wynn captured at Forest Hill. So it's a, it's a video of me coming into Forest Hill and doing all of our crew stuff and the total, and I was running in and he got me running out. And the total length of this video is like two minutes and 54 seconds. And I think Forest Hill was my longest stop of the day. And we did so much at that aid station. Like if you watch this video, it's all hands on deck. Crew is doing so many things. I didn't even know what people were doing to me, to be honest. And the fact that like they were so dialed and we did all of that in three minutes, it's um, it's a testament to planning for a hundred miler and just the importance of efficiency. And I think the sports come a long way um, in that respect. It really does remind me of like a NASCAR pit stop because <laughs> oftentimes like, you know, you're swapping out shoes. So you're like changing tires and it's just like all about efficiency. Um, it really is. Yeah. There's this great photo of Katie Asmith from the race where she's leaning back in a chair and I think it's at Forest Hill and there's like five different pairs of hands in this photo doing different things. And I think her comment was so many hands. And I think that's that's Western States in a nutshell, just so many hands. Yeah. So I saw you again at Michigan Bluff, which is, I think, like mile 55 or so. Mm -hmm. yeah, 55. Um, how did miles 30 to 55 go for you? Those were great. Um, that was the beginning of the canyons. And I was definitely nervous for that all day long, like all morning leading up to it, because I knew it was going to start getting hot. And I mean, Western States was projected to reach a high of 99 or 100. And I knew it was really going to start feeling that way um, in those miles leading up to 55. And I had run this section, of course, at the training camp. So I knew what to anticipate. And it's a long downhill, long, steady downhill out of um, out of Robinson Flat. And it's cruisy. You can really blow your quads on this section. So I just told myself to stay relaxed. And it was in this section that I started running with Anne-Marie Madden. And it was her first hundred miler. And we were just going back and forth about like, this is how you race it. This is what you got to do. And just encouraging each other that like we were running it smart because she's historically a really smart racer. And um, I was really excited to see what, how she would race a hundred miles too. So once I saw her around me, I was like, okay, I'm doing things right. Um, but I, we, I think we lost each other at one of the aid stations, but um, I started to feel really great coming up on, um, we hit Duncan Canyon and then coming up into Michigan Bluff. There's a pretty steady climb. And I was very surprised going up this climb because I remember during the Western States training camp that it felt humid. It felt warm. I felt like I was baking and I felt great. I did not feel hot. I felt like I had taken care of myself really successfully at the aid stations between, I think, Dusty Corners and then Michigan Bluff. Those were my two crew spots. And I, this was actually the longest section you went without seeing your crew. And I knew this was crucial. People always talked about the climb up to Devil's Thumb, how hot that can be and just like taking care of yourself. So at those aid stations, I was just putting ice in every crevice of my body and just being like, okay, even if you take time at these aid stations, it's going to pay dividends in the future. So coming up into Michigan Bluff, I felt not the least bit hot yet, which was perfect. And just started to feel really good on this section. And I, I remember coming up and I um, felt like I started to push more than I had at any given point in the day on the climb into Michigan Bluff. 
And I just had to remind myself once I got to Michigan Bluff, I think Mike even told me like, don't do anything stupid. Uh, so Michigan Bluff was definitely a nice reset for me. Like, okay, don't, yeah, waste any of your matches. You were on a, a mission when <laughs> I saw you at Michigan Bluff. And uh, yeah, so Mike and I got there like and Ken, your dad, uh-huh. yeah. uh, we got there, I don't know, two and a half, three hours before you rolled through. Yeah, you should and... talk about the nice setup that you guys had oh, at Michigan yeah. Bluff because I think you guys, you lived luxury oh, yeah. at Michigan yeah. Bluff. <laughs> so Michigan Bluff is this like, the aid station is literally on this street in Michigan Bluff, the, the only street in Michigan Bluff, mm-hmm. I think. There's like probably seven or eight houses down there and it's probably i don't know 15 minute drive off the main highway i think so tucked away and yeah you guys are friends with someone that owns one of those houses (laughs) uh so we we pulled up and we saw everyone kind of in the beating hot sun getting their uh crew stations ready for their runners and we pulled into a driveway and went inside and uh hung out in an air-conditioned living room <laughs> and watched the live broadcast uh, on like a 70-inch TV and <laughs> drank ice water uh, while their people, yeah, just kind of turned into human jerky outside. <laughs> I know. Everybody needs a friend that has a house in Michigan Bluff is the moral of the story. <laughs> yeah. It was really wild, though, because we would watch a runner run by out of the window and then turn our heads and watch like the live feed. And Man, that is like... incredible. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was great. That was a that was a highlight for me for sure. Cool. So then I saw you again at Forest Hill. You changed, I think you changed shoes mm-hmm. and you picked up your pacer. Yes. Yeah. So the section between Michigan Bluff and Forest Hill is, um, it's, it's really nice and cruisy. Like we do it in the opposite direction. Uh, for canyons, which I've done twice. And then I've now done it in the opposite direction um, at the training camp. So I was very familiar with that. And after pushing up that climb a little bit into Michigan Bluff, um, I remember chatting with Paul Lind when I was in that aid station too. And he said, like, keep doing what you're doing. Like, they will come back to you. And I just kept telling myself that on that section. I was like, okay, you don't need to do anything crazy. Just um, was in track and field, like in whenever they have, these races at like championships that they always have semifinals and then finals and they're racing multiple times in a weekend. And the mentality there is just like survive in advance. And that was my mantra on those sections from like mile 40 to 60 or so, which is like survive in advance. You're just, you're surviving. You're feeling good. You're just going through the motions. You're doing staying status quo. And the people who are, you know, experiencing the heat a little bit more than you, like they're going to start coming back to you. So just trying to stay like cool headed on this section and realize like I was doing everything I needed to do. And the race truly does not begin until Forest Hill, Michigan bluff to Forest Hill. It takes about like, it was, I was planning on that taking me somewhere between like 60 and 70 minutes, I think. Um, And there's a section called bath road where you can have, you can be crewed the entirety of bath road, which is somewhere between a mile and a half and two miles up into Forest Hill. And it's this really nice pavement uphill climb. So I had um, two people on my crew join me there. Um, well, actually, and Mike. So it was Sarah and Anna and Mike. And I had them like on my spreadsheet, some responsibilities that they were in charge of. And they were just crewing me for that entire two miles. I didn't really need too much at that point, but it was it was nice to do some like cooling down there, drink some smoothie, just get, get some updates on the day. 
because then when I rolled into Forest Hill, like the actual Forest Hill aid station, like we mentioned earlier, that's where like the pit stop really took place where things were getting taken care of. So it was nice on Bath Road. I could tell them, hey, I told Sarah, hey, I uh, I think I want to change shoes. She was able to text the crew at Forest Hill. Leah's going to want a pair of shoes, pair of socks, et cetera. So it was, it was nice to have that amount of communication. Um so they could be prepared up at the aid station as they waited for me. Yeah, I think you texted the group chat like, no more awesome sauce because that <laughs> just wasn't wasn't sitting well for you. And I looked at your vest and it was just full of awesome sauce. <laughs> You're like, I was like, oh, well, <laughs> I'm glad we got that. I'm glad we have service here or else <laughs> this might tank Leah's You're race. You're just sitting in a pile of awesome sauce afterwards. Yeah, yeah. What well, was it like picking up... Dimitri, your first pacer, was that like, did it give you kind of a kick? It did. Um, yeah, he and I run a good bit together. We do a lot of our workouts together in Salt Lake. Um, so we're very familiar with running with each other. And Dimitri is like the definition of a caretaker. And there's at the end of that video that I was talking about of our crew exchange and everything at Forest Hill, he's running after me on Forest Hill Road, like spraying me down with sunscreen. And I was like, that is Dimitri in a nutshell, just like taking care of all the things that I'm not even thinking about. So like sunscreening me as I'm running away from him. Um, But it was really nice to have him. I told him, I think when I picked him up, hey, I'm not going to be the most fun to chat with, but I just really enjoy having your company right now. And um, I'll let you know if I need anything or need you to talk to me or need me to say anything. But it was just nice to have the company. And I was very familiar with that section. So when I would come into the aid stations, uh, I would tell him what I was going to need at that aid station. And he's really efficient, detail-oriented, takes care of things. So he's a really good person to have for those crucial miles where you're, you just want to stay consistent. You don't want to get too ahead of yourself. Um, and you just want to make sure that like you are being taken care of. So that's the section that his wife, Teresa, was supposed to pace me on. So I both of them would have been perfect for that, um, unfortunately, yeah, for COVID her ability to come out to Western States, but he was a perfect uh, second string, I'd say. <laughs> Did you start kind of trying to move up during that stretch? Because I think from Forest Hill, the next crew location is Rucky Chucky, which yep. is mile 78. So that's that's a, a big chunk. Yeah. Um, so I think at Forest Hill, I came into there in 11th place. And I believe I probably left there in 10th place. I think I might have passed somebody in the aid station. Yeah, I think it's one person, Um, which I didn't exactly know where I was uh, placement wise. I think I even told you guys I wasn't very concerned about that. And, you know, maybe later. And I'm one of those people that I'll ask for the information that I want to have. Um, So for me in this race, it wasn't really asking until later, kind of where I was at. Um, So on that section, so that section is known as Cal Street. And it's, um, pretty rolling downhill, some like little punchers here and there, but um, it's not too bad at all, actually. And this this section actually felt surprisingly hot to me. Um, I hadn't felt hot all day. And I remember saying that when I arrived in Forest Hill, I said, I have not felt hot yet, which was a good sign to me that I had been doing all the right things. Um, that section between Forest Hill and Rocky Chucky is the first time it started to feel a little hot. I think it was just like an oven in there. It's baking and just felt very, very dry and hot. Um, so on this section, I felt good. I just still planned on maintaining what I was doing. And I think um, it was, I m- moved into ninth on this section. I think I passed Camila Bruas at an aid station. And I 
didn't really kick it in. I moved pretty strong up one of the steeper climbs on this section and kind of made a move. But other than that, I just told myself to keep it together. And unfortunately on this section, I had what I thought was a calf cramp, which I had finicky calves left calf this year. And I, I've stayed on top of it pretty well, but I remember telling Dimitri in the section, I was like, oh, I think I have a calf cramp. I'm going to lay off like salt tabs for a little bit. And then a couple miles later, so I was like, oh, maybe it's not salt. Maybe it's my nutrition. Like how, how should I problem solve this? And then eventually after it just like wasn't going away, I was like, okay, I think I might've done something to my calf, but I think he might've messaged up to the next crew spot. Like, Hey, Leah's going to want her calf sleeve at the next aid station. So again, nice that people were in service and we were able to communicate those little things. Um, but yeah, then the next spot we got to see people was on the near side of the river at Rocky Chucky. Did the fact that your calf pain kind of started to ramp up, did it kind of creep into your mind that like, oh, this could be a big issue? Yeah, it did. Um, it's never, it didn't hurt necessarily. It was just present. Um, and I felt fine running on it, but it was getting in my head a little bit. Um, and I was getting nervous of, okay, what is this going to mean for later? It felt really good climbing, felt pretty good on flats, but then on any like slight descents, I was like, oh, this might be a little bit of an issue, but I tried to keep it out of my head, but it was definitely something that was creeping in on those miles and making me a little nervous because something Mike and I always say to each other is like at Bandera, we said it, for example, when I uh, had a really hard last 10 miles and just lost a bunch of time and position and everything. We said just so much can happen in 10 miles. And in this section, it was like 30 miles. So if so much can happen in 10 miles, even more can happen in 30 miles. And I think that's where I was getting a little bit nervous. I'm like, okay, this could end up being a really hard, hard last 30 miles. But okay, let's just try to not think about it. Don't focus on it. And I don't like to use any like Tylenol or ibuprofen in races. So I just just like, just gotta, you know, get get yourself through this. I feel like whenever I have like, I don't know, a small injury or something pop up and I'm intending to run like pretty long. What's nice is that at a certain point, like everything hurts. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it kind of like masks like the actual issue you're dealing with. Exactly. Um, well, I was, um, so the one year I, uh, when I met Katie Asmuth for the first time, I paced her at the bear in 2019 and she ended up getting some IT band issues while I was pacing her that year. And I'll never forget, she had this mantra that she's like, pain is just a sensation. And she was telling herself that in those miles that I was with her there. And that's something that's really stuck with me to this day is, okay, something's hurting you. Yes, it, you know, it could be an injury. Okay. But pain is also just a sensation at this moment in time. So try not to, you know, focus too much on that because it could also go away and then you'll feel totally fine a little bit later. Right. Also, like it's Western states. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so even if pain is a sensation right now, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I think I told myself that I was like, well, if this hurts me now, like just get to the finish line. We'll worry about this tomorrow. <laughs> How was crossing the river? Because I feel like that's kind of a big landmark on the course is like, all right, I've crossed the river. I have 20 miles left. Yeah, it was amazing. It felt so good. First off, um, I also saw my dad on the near side of the river and then my friends Chase and Kate and did a little like pack swap with them. But then my dad was uh, whispering motivational words to me uh, right as I was beginning the crossing. And it was so cool for him to see because, I mean, what other race do you really, you know, ford a river? And there he was on the one side watching all the other racers do it. And then he got to see me do it. And um, I was chatting with somebody else about this recently. But yeah, he got to motivate me for the first time in 
many, many years. I grew up with him as my soccer coach. Um, and you know, we kind of like fought back and forth on the soccer field most of the times, but he's never really had to be in this position of like, what do I say to Leah to get her through these last 20 miles? And he just told me like, you're a fighter. Fighters don't give up. Fighters can pass people later. Just keep doing what you're doing. And like, I know you're strong. And it was just incredible. It was like the words I didn't know I needed to hear at that moment. But man, I felt like I powered across the river, like going up and over the rocks and whatnot. Um, And it was even more incredible because on the other side of the river has been where I saw Mike. And he told me, I think he told me I was in ninth place. Katie was a couple minutes ahead of me. And then Camille and Taylor were just a few minutes ahead of her. So I was like, holy crap, this is actually happening. We're at mile 80. My goal for the day was like, yeah, the race starts at Forest Hill, but the race truly doesn't really begin until Greengate. Um, and I was like, this is all just coming to fruition. And this is really freaking cool. Yeah, I remember seeing someone on Twitter when I think it was like I run far posted a picture of you. And the the first comment was like, she closes like a freight train. <laughs> and I was like, yep. So uh, it's cool that you were able to to kind of, you know, see that you were in a good place to like move up late in the race. And it, that seemed like that was in line with your plan from the start. It, it totally was. Um, I went into the race knowing if I ran smart that on my best day, I could run four hours from the river to the finish. And um, yeah, on Strava, it showed three hours and 59 minutes and some change. So I was like, wow. <laughs> that yeah, is pretty, so, pretty cool. So you work your way up that climb from the river to Greengate where I pick you up. And I think Sarah was like, she doesn't want to talk a lot. She just like needs you to run with her. And I was like, all right. And at this point, I think it was like 7.30 or 8. It was a beautiful time of day when the sun was kind of beginning to fade. Um, and I was exhausted. And I was like, Matt, like Leah is going to kick your ass during this section like don't screw this up uh because something that i didn't realize was that pacing an elite who is in contention for a podium or the win is really stressful you know because you you pick someone up that's been running for 14 hours 80 miles or so like they're not responsible. Like yeah. they can't, they can't have, they have trouble making decisions, you know, they wouldn't be like legally allowed to drive. And so I'm like, all right, well I better stay on course. Cause if I take a wrong turn and lead Leah somewhere where, you know, she's not supposed to go and ruin this race, like it's not a good look for me. No, uh, it's like you don't want to make a right turn up highway 49, you know? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I picked you up and we ran the next 14 and a half miles I think faster than anyone, any woman in, in course history, right? Yeah. And that's, um, that's attributed 100% to your pacing. Oh yeah. It was incredible. (laughs) To be fair, you were in front of me the entire time, (laughs) apart from like, you know, uh, I think like a 10 minute section. Um, But the sun started to set. We took our headlamps, uh, we put our headlamps on. Um, What was your mentality when uh, things went dark? Yeah, I knew this section um, from Western States Training Camp was super runnable. And I think the ladies I was running with that day, um, we were cruising. And I knew we weren't going to run it that fast on race day. But I just remember how nice that section was. It's not really technical. There's a couple little punchers that are 
annoying. I think I even told you on the one section, like, oh, I hate this section. (laughs) But my mentality was like, okay, let's get to work. Um, There's not a lot of, there's not a lot of time left to be running. Like four hours, you do that all the time. Um, Just give this everything you got. And I mean, we were moving so steady and I kept telling myself like, holy crap, you are moving. You are feeling so much better than you ever have this late in the race. And it was just mind blowing to me. Like every time we progressed, you know, five more miles or to the next aid station, it's just like, how do I feel this good right now? Like I shouldn't feel this good, but I do. So let's go with it. Um, so it was really nice, um, having those like dusky miles with you just kind of cruising. Uh, we weren't talking much, but you know, just having company, having somebody to remind me to eat every, uh, now and again, even though I didn't really like you whenever you would tell me to eat. Um, but I was just, the mentality on this section was like, okay, let's see how many people we can pick up. And I think being efficient in these aid stations, like I, I think even rolling into one of those first ones, like we were really focused on just being in and out being as quick as I could, not having like anything extra, not doing like too much with heat anymore, but it was still pretty hot. Like, I think yeah. I read one of the Iron Far tweets about me after the race and it's like, Leah filled her sleeves with ice and was like out of the aid station. And I was like, dang, I was still like cooling myself down at that point, which is crazy because it was, you know, eight and nine, 10 PM at this point. Um, so that was really cool. Yeah. I, I remember you whimpering when I'd be like, Leah, it's, it's time to eat another gel. It's been 25 <laughs> minutes. I'm sorry. And I'd say like, how about another five minutes? <laughs> Cause you were shooting for what? Like 400 calories an hour. I think like that? that's yeah. Especially early in the day I was um, exceeding that. And then I think as we got on some of the, like the really runnable stuff later in the day and later in the race too, I was probably hitting roughly 400 calories, which is like, I was really proud of that, just how well, I mean, how well my pacers kept me eating, but then how well I was able to like keep everything down um, because I fueled the race entirely off of gels and gels, some pickle juice, and I think some smoothies. So um, I must have a stomach of steel. <laughs> yeah, great microbiome for sure. <laughs> yeah. But I'm you probably killed most of it during that race. I, I think I did the next day. My stomach was like, what did you just do to me? <laughs> yeah. So we passed two runners uh, during that stretch. And man, it felt like we were on some kind of mission. I remember you like strategizing with me. You're like, all right, like we see their headlamps ahead. You're going to get in front because I want them to think that like you're a male runner. Yes. Um, which is funny, racing. like, I, I've never had a runner be in front of me before, because I never thought, or a pacer be in front of me before, because I never thought I would actually like that. But man, it was so nice, like, just being, like, glued on you, and I was going your pace, and, like, I mean, you kept my pace really well, even when you were running in front of me, but it was like, I'm I'm hanging on to him, and we're going, we're moving, and I think we saw one headlamp, and I think it was probably Taylor was the first yeah. of the couple people we passed, and then I think they passed... um a couple guys and then uh, we had thought it was Camille because we knew she wasn't too far ahead. And then we, we saw that there were guys. Okay, let's go. We passed. Yeah. We passed (laughs) a bunch of guys and I was like, Oh man. (laughs) And then we'd like look up on the hillside and I think that's Camille because she was, she didn't have a pacer. So it was just one, one headlamp to be looking for. Um, So yeah, I just felt like I keep explaining it to people as just an out of body experience for those last four hours, because that is truly what it was like. I can't believe we were moving like we were. It felt like we were hunting in the night, being sneaky, and just 
just so ridiculous, honestly, looking back on it. But uh, such special, such special miles out there, man. What yeah, experience. we were like whispering. Like, All right, like at one point you were like, "All right, we're gonna surge by them." And I was like, yeah. "What does that mean?" <laughs> You're like, "Tech, this is serious." Yeah, uh, that was great. Yeah, uh, I remember rolling into uh, Scott Jurek's aid station with Hal Kerner. And I think they were, yeah, they were blasting Taylor Swift and it was quite the scene, but you were just so like dialed that I think like it didn't register for you. I I was like, you're Scott Jurek. What's up? (laughs) And I was like, fill my bottle. (laughs) Yeah. You were just asking about who uh, was ahead of you. Um, How much time. And I remember like, I think I got one bottle filled and I was like, okay, that's good enough. Let's go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I delivered you to the hands of your husband at uh mile 94.5 yeah and can you tell me about what the last six miles were like yeah so i have um some psychology with my pacers um i've had mike pace me in a couple of my hundreds before and i think i've realized where he works best for me where he works less great for me and western states was definitely um kind of catering to how I knew I'd be feeling at certain times and what type of energy um, I would want at certain times. So for example, from Forest Hill to the river, I wanted somebody who, you know, I've run with a bunch. It's just like easy, keep me in check, knows what I need. And it was actually really, it was so nice. You and I have not run a lot together. So that was, I think, another component that was interesting for Western states. We'd probably run together three times, maybe. I think we did Twice. like one, one six hour run. One, so so one time we ran once yeah. together before this. And I knew like in my mind, I'm like, I don't want to make Matt walk. Like I don't want to make Matt have a suffer fest out there. Like I, and that's motivating to me because I'm a people pleaser. So I know my people pleasing attributes, like want to make sure that you're also having a good day out there. Um, and, Cause I know if I had Mike in those miles where I had you, I would be such a baby. And like when my stuff, if my stomach started to hurt or my calf, I would just lean into those negative emotions and get more vulnerable and just like kind of weaker in my mind in those moments. So having Mike for those last six miles where I knew I wouldn't be like, it was probably an hour or so. Um, and I had him to look forward to, like, it was okay. Like you're going to do this with Matt and then you get Mike and then it's just like comfortable there to the finish. And like, he's got you. Uh, so having him at mile 94 was just so special. And then of course, the second I got him as my pacer, we started running and it gets to this like technical downhill. And of course, like my calf wasn't loving it. And I was like, oh, my calf. And I was like, and you and I ran together for 14 miles. And I don't think I said a word about it. The second nope. I get Mike, I'm just a small child. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was funny rolling into that aid station because I was like, I was pretty worked. Like you were not running slow. <laughs> and uh, I remember kind of being like, all right, I'm going to like take some time and get some food from the aid station, you know, I earned this. And Sarah's like, all right, we got to go. Like, <laughs> yeah. Where are we going? Uh, we beelined it uh, to the track to watch you come in. And I drove Mike's car there and parked. I, I didn't think about the fact that you would have to drive after that too. Yeah. I mean, it's not a long drive, but yeah. Anyway, we got to the track and Sarah's like, all right, we got to run up and meet her at Roby point, which is like the last 1.3 miles or something. And my body's like seizing up. <laughs> and I was like, I guess I'm doing this. So like, I have no choice. 
Yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's, kind there's of... that funny video. Um, I think Dimitri took it at Pointed Rocks, which is mile 94. And it was just when you got done pacing. And Sarah, <laughs> she says, all right, like, come on, Matt, we got to hustle. And I can't tell you how many times I watched that because Dimitri pans over to you and you're just like, are you serious right now? <laughs> yeah, I was I was pretty smoked. It was a long day. Um, my, my mom watched that video recently and we were on the phone chatting about it. She's like, man, that video, she's like, Matt just seems like such a good sport. And I was like, if I had to describe Matt in any words, it is like such a good sport. And I was like, that oh. video just documents that in its entirety. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Because uh, then, yeah, we got to the track and I had to run like a seven minute mile up to <laughs> Roby Point. But we got there just in time and your entire crew ran you in the last, yeah, 1.3 miles, which was like, man, thinking about it makes me makes me tear up. It was it was such a cool experience. It was so special. Um, yeah, those last six miles with Mike, they weren't anything special. I think I was being a baby for like two of them at least. And then I felt great climbing, actually. So once you hit No Hands Bridge, you have like a, it's not that fun of a climb, but you, you climb for a little bit up to Roby Point. And um, I just wanted to like run all of that as best I could. And he and I did. And I just knew I would get to see all of you guys soon. And that was so motivating. It was so motivating to know that, okay, once you get up there, all you had to do was just like enjoy some pavement miles with your friends. It's going to be great. Um, but at this point, I didn't exactly know who was behind me and like how close they were. I knew I had passed a couple people and I, I had moved into sixth around, I don't know, probably around mile 90 or so. Um, and in my mind, I just kept telling Mike, like check the tracker, see how much time I have because there's nothing I hate more than like having an uncomfortable last couple miles of a race. Um, and I knew that I had plenty of space in front of me where like there was no hope of me moving up. Um, I was just more concerned with like, can we just coast this in? Like, this would be fun. Um, so we moved well up into Roby Point. And then when I got you guys, that was just exceptional. And look, they don't tell you how punchy those uh, pavement oh, yeah. miles are up there. <laughs> I don't know what grade that is, but oh, it was it was tough. Yeah, it's harder than you think. And uh, man, yeah, after you like do these like more mountainous climbs during the day, who would think that the climb up to mile 99 is like as painful as it is in that moment? What was the last uh, lap around the track like? Oh, it was so special. It was so special. Just like seeing everybody out there and then hitting the track, knowing that all that stands between you and a Western States finish is 300 meters. And uh, my dad, who you know does not do much physical activity other than yard work, um, he joined me for probably at least 100 meters of that final lap. And I think there's a segment I saw on Strava where... I think we hit probably 530 something pace at one point in time. I was like, dad, dang, like you had that in you. <laughs> you get it from somewhere. I know I must. Um, so it was really cool. Everybody joined me and it was so special just sprinting it in, like knowing that you had just been through a day and I don't know, they, people talk about that moment a lot, but nothing quite compares being able to share that with especially everybody that got you through that day, because, you know, it really truly does take a village. And I think Western States, I mean, it's total proof of that. Like anyone from like the first finisher, when you see Adam Peterman's finish and seeing his huge Montana crew running in with him, 
um, to the last finisher in the golden hour. You just see these crews that got those people to where they are in those moments in time. And it's really special. Um, so yeah, just satisfied, happy, and just overjoyed with the love of the community at the finish line is pretty much exactly how I describe that. What was your finish time? Uh, 1832. And you came in sixth place? Yep, sixth place. And I First uh, American. Yeah, that was very cool. Yeah. That was one cool. of my, I had a couple like A goals for the day and um, running 1830 and being top American were two of those A goals, um, which was really, really special. And then you got to hang out in the medical tent for a while. <laughs> for a while. What they don't tell you about getting sixth place at Western States is that you will have to accumulate a half a cup of urine uh, after you finish. And that is easier said than done. <laughs> yeah. How long were you in there for? <laughs> Two and a half hours. Um, nice. I think there was people that was that were in there longer than me, which I feel good about. I actually think Adam might have knocked his cup of urine over and had to reproduce some so really yeah oh um, man so yeah that that was tough i drank three bottles of water a bottle of gatorade and ate a single sun chip hoping to give myself some fluid but yeah it's funny too because you know i did a great job fueling and hydrating all day long but i think 100 miles does some weird things to your body and like you're actually way more dehydrated than you think you are so wasn't as easy as I thought. She, I got approached at the finish line. So that, yeah, I was a little sad about it because I really wanted to enjoy the moment of finishing with all my friends, with my dad, with everybody that was there. And I got whisked away to the medical tent right after that. But yeah, I would probably do that part different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I get it. Like trying to keep the sport clean exactly. and all that, but uh, I was a little bummed, bummed that you uh, were in there for so long, too. I know. But, I know. Initially, she was like, you think you can go now? I was like, oh, yeah. And then I got over there. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk about one more thing, which is Golden Hour the next day. I missed Golden Hour last year because uh, I had some obligations. So this was my first time actually being there in person for it. Um, can you just kind of describe it for me? Yeah, so this is the last hour of Western States. So the cutoff of Western States is 30 hours. So on the track in from hour 29 to hour 30, there are so many finishers. And I want to say this year, I don't know why this is just a six point mind. I think this is the most golden hour finishers they might have ever had. So the most people ever finishing between 29 and 30 hours, which is amazing. Um, but there's so much energy because the award ceremony is starting pretty soon. So you get all the crowds there to watch the last finishers and then also go to the award ceremony afterwards. But just the amount of support that those last runners get is incredible. And then the stories that come along with those last finishers are even more incredible. Um, this year, I'm, I'm pretty sure there was a finisher two minutes after the cutoff. Um, but even still, like despite not getting an official finish, everybody was on the track cheering them in. And it, it was so special just being able to help help them give them energy and be a part of that. It's the best hour in ultra running sports. I stand by that. Yeah, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that it might be like the best hour like in any sport. Oh, uh, it's, it, it's amazing. And it's just uh, if you watch it from afar, watch it in person, it's it's nearly impossible not to cry, um, like tear jerking the whole time. Um, moving just even, I think, um, what was it? 
probably 30 minutes afterwards, but he had won Western States at some point in his life as well. He was incredible. Anyway, it's just exceptional. And I highly recommend that anybody who hasn't been to Western States find yourself out there being a part of Golden Hour just makes the whole experience extra special. Yeah. I mean, it, what's funny too is you see everyone that has run the day before and they're just like waddling around. <laughs> it's amazing. And like, not to mention, it is so 11 a.m. ish at this point, and it is hot in yeah. Auburn. So, not only do these runners go through the first hot day, they're also going through a second hot day in lower, uh, lower elevation where it is baking. For these last few hours it is not cold i think it was probably 100 degrees again so props to them because going through two hot days or at least portions of two hot days is uh, no small feat all right i gotta ask you one more question before we get out of here are you gonna be back next year i think so have you decided <laughs> i think so uh going into western states i was like if i nail this race i'll be happy to just do a one and done but then you get there and then you do it and you want to know if you can do it better. You want to have an experience again. And it's going to be hard to replicate just the positivity and the day I had out there. But there's definitely things I think I can improve on. And yeah, I think I think one more go at it would be nice. <laughs> what was your answer to that question a day after Western States? Do you think it was the same? No, I was, would have been like, no, I'm good. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I well, did not I did not feel good the day after the race, so that was uh yeah, nope. <laughs> Hard no. Well I'll uh I'll make sure I'm available. <laughs> yeah, please do. We we need you back on crew A next year. I need awesome. somebody to be like stealthy with me again from uh mile eighty to ninety four. Yeah, I'll I'll dress uh in all black yeah. next year. I don't know. We need to talk about your cool shirt that you got so many compliments on. Oh yeah, that's a good <laughs> point. I got so many compliments on this cool shirt. <laughs> it was wild. I was like, Oh yeah, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, so you might need to bring that back next year, too. Yeah. All right. Deal. <laughs> cool. Thanks, Leah. Thanks, Matt. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Leah for the conversation. Thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from everyone here at Blister, please take good care of yourself, keep moving forward, and we'll talk to you again next week.